It's the 19th of November, 2021. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush with Room Now. I'm joined by Caleb Michaud from the University of Nebraska Medical Center. And we're going to discuss resistance and change. But first, patient characteristics may inform your treatment approach with specific patient populations. A biomarker-driven study with precisely defined inclusion criteria looked at Arencium, Abitacept, and a TNF inhibitor. Don't treat in the dark. Visit ArenciaData.com. You've seen this sort of scenario. Patient comes in, they're not doing well. You figure it's time to write a new prescription. You give them the prescription only to find out later on they didn't fill it. They were concerned, not really ready, and they didn't change. And you're not quite sure why. So on this podcast, we're going to talk about resistance unwillingness to change, and what this means to practice. So, Caleb, thank you for joining me. Caleb Michaud is from the University of Nebraska uh, Medical Center. Um, He is the principal investigator in the Forward National Data Bank for uh, Rheumatic Diseases Study. It's been a longitudinal study that started by Fred Wolf, and and Caleb's been running it for a number of years now. Um, 23. How many? 23 years now. Oh, well, so you're a rookie. Um, pretty yes. good. Uh, Caleb, thank you for uh, coming on and talking about this really important abstract we're going to talk about. First, tell the audience about um, the Forward Registry. The Forward Data Bank is Forward is the new name for the NDB. Uh, it is a longitudinal observational registry. We've been enrolling folks since 1998. Basically, anyone who's seen a rheumatologist in a rheumatology office is probably going to be eligible. We're looking for anyone with a rheumatic disease. Uh, and they fill out questionnaires every six months, twice a year. So this is sort of the model that started with lots of national registries back in the 90s, hence the name National Data Bank at the time. Uh, and uh, so we renamed it forward just a few years ago, sort of make it more patient friendly. And we have a magazine that goes out to all of our participants. But since then, we've got a few hundred papers and we are a nonprofit that tries to provide our data to researchers and folks who have interesting questions along the way. We're constantly asking new things as well as people think of them. Yeah, it's really, uh, it's it's a wealth of information. You know, you, any of the papers that have come out of that but have always been very practical and very useful. Um, we're going to talk today about your abstract at ACR 2021-1158, uh, entitled Resistance of Patients with Rheumatoid Arthritis to Changing Therapy, a 15-year follow-up by Caleb and coworkers from the University of Nebraska and this uh, forward um, uh, study. Um, in what you did back in 2006 with Fred was you inserted nine questions in your usual six-month survey about patient satisfaction to treatments that they were taking and their preferences and and specifically the idea of change and their willingness to change therapy. And here you are some, uh, you know, 15 years later asking the same question. I'm just going to go right to the cut, right to the chase. The bottom line of this study was that from 2006 to 2021, the patient number on unwillingness to change did drop from 64% in 2006 to 51% in 2021, but there were 442 patients in this cohort who answered both surveys, and yet their unwillingness to change really didn't change. So have patients changed over time or not? Well, we have found that they have changed in some ways, some important ways. So let me back up a little bit because that 2006 study that Fred and I did 
you know, what, what drove us to ask those questions were that we had so many patients who had poor outcome scores, poor hack, pain, everything, yet they were still on their CSD marks. They weren't sort of doing the treat to target and taking advantage of all the new therapies that were available. And so we're trying to figure out why. Uh, and in the end, sort of the, the, the thesis of that is that people were afraid of getting worse. And they all had experiences of being worse and side effects or something else. And it was just so that, that they were okay being in moderate levels because it was sort of a day-to-day -day manageable scenario versus they could imagine a place where it could be much worse than that. Uh, and the idea when you have change in therapies, it's often associated with some sort of change in disease activity. Uh, you're right. So we, we learned to sort of, let's see what happens now, considering there's a whole bunch more therapies than there were back then. Right. And now we're sort of reverting back to orals instead of the injections and infusions, which we thought were the biggest barriers to trying something new. And we, we didn't see as much change as we expected. Uh, the biggest areas of change is that cost wasn't, and insurance was, much, was not as much of an issue as it was back then. Now, there's two things there that I see to highlight. Uh, one is that the pharmaceutical companies have done a great job making sure that if you're prescribed the drug, that you're going to get it, even if you can't afford it at some level. And that wasn't necessarily there 20 years ago. Uh, but second is probably a sign of the folks who are still participating are more likely to have good coverage as well. And we've sort of seen that as well, a little bit of the participation bias. Uh, but, the, you know, the, the areas that we expected to change, that the people who would be uh, more amenable to trying something new didn't. And, uh, you know, why, why aren't more folks maybe moving to something else or if they're still not in a, a great place where you'd want them to be? And a lot of the same reasons are still showing up. Yeah, uh, you know, I would I would think, well, back then we had an issue of fear and risk based on the newness of the drugs and they said they were doing IVs all of a sudden. Um, and now the fear and risk equation seems to have changed, but it still seems to be equally present. Here, fear and risk is driven by direct-to-consumer advertising, and everybody sees all this reminders of all the bad things that can happen all the time. But again, I, I was surprised to see that uh, risk of adverse events has not changed as far as its importance here. It's still important. It's one of the three big things you point out. Yeah, and if you've ever had a side effect to a drug, you're much more susceptible to be, you know, uh, less risk averse, I mean, more risk averse, I guess, in this case. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think that's still driving a lot of this, because what you see is if somebody, for example, switched to a TNF and initially they were successful, they did well, uh, but then over time you sort of see the gradual, like, well, they're not under the control that you'd like to be. You want to do a different MOA mechanism of activation for them, what happens is sometimes they're like, well, why don't we try another TNF? Because it, I didn't have a bad reaction to it at the beginning. So maybe another one would do it as opposed to trying something that has a completely different approach to it. And that's sort of that, that risk averseness that comes in into play oftentimes. So the uh, unwillingness to change number did go down from 64 to 51% in, in the 15 years. Do you have a feel for why? Well, you know, one of the things that came up at the ACR poster, which was very good because we did the analysis in the last week was, so how much is disease activity? And so what, what we did is I split up the, uh, using the, the past two patient activ activity scale and remission and low activity to moderate and severe. 
And if you do a binary split there, which is in the two, 2021, when we asked this in January of this year, there's about median time point, about halfway and halfway. Um, it's really driven by that. Um, it's really the disease activity there. And the people who are afraid of getting worse are the people who are much, who are doing well. Like they don't want to get worse. They're under control. Uh, so they're more resistant, which is good, which is where you want it to be. But, uh, you know, I can, I can jump to the end where I think things are going to go um, because uh, another, another paper that I'm working on is looking at adherence of medication and, you know, the spoiler alert, it's really being driven by patient uh, global, how, what the patient thinks, how they're doing. So I like to, I just said this earlier in our didactics at Nebraska, it was like, you know, physician global drives prescription changes as it should, because if you see somebody doing worse, you're going to put it in your you know, global assessment. It's the patient global that drives their adherence to the drugs that they're on and willingness is maybe to try something else as well. So if I'm doing well, does that mean I'm doing well enough to stop or I'm doing well and I don't want to screw it up and I'm going to keep going? You don't want to screw it up. You don't want to make a change, right? You're under... But I mean, there's clearly other things that lead to that. You're gonna, there's a whole aspect of socioeconomic status and education and, and other aspects there as well. Interesting. So this is so back in 2006, you guys wrote that like patients were like 70 plus percent satisfied with where they were, and um, even if they had poor scores, exactly. Yeah, and were, when when you looked at that 70 percent who were satisfied, that um, a high number of them ha had moderate, over 71%, 71% had right. moderate or worse disease activity. It seems then that over time that they, patients have taken the option of getting better. So they do have better disease activity, but still some are worried about change. And maybe it's, is it for different reasons? Now they're worried about change because they're doing so well. Before they yeah, were I mean, it's, change, it's, they it's all about adaptation, adaptation at some level, right? You know, if like you have a certain level of disability and pain that you live with, but you're able to either get a job that you can do with that or have a sort of quality of life that you're used to. And then you, you know that when things are bad, you can't do that. So you don't want to trigger that whatever will cause those flares or so you can't have what you sort of gotten used to. Uh, and it's something what we see in older age groups as well, which is often happen in this cohort too. Uh, with older age, the pain levels go down. It's not that they're actually experiencing less pain, it's sort of the adaptation to it. Um, so it's a little bit of everything. And this is far from being done. We're still doing the analysis on this, but uh, just sort of some early messaging from it at this point. So the, the, the three things that did hold true back in 2006 and today was um, patients were unwilling to change if they they were satisfied with RA's good control, um, um, concern about potential risks, and what the doctor preferred as far as their treatment, which means that they are listening to some extent to, to the doctors. Um, are there any others that sort of stood out? Um, I guess a lot of different um, questions in there about potential reasons. And I, I again, none of them jump off the page at me. Um, yeah, in the end, sort of the disease activity, the patient global were big, the um, education, and also I mean, we've been using some of these other scales. Um, I, guess I always know the acronym, uh, beliefs and medication questionnaires and things like that. And, and it seems to be a very important tool 
before prescription, but once you're actually taking something new and you're on it for a little bit, it sort of goes out the window. Then all, everything changes back to sort of a new normal. So it, it's really sort of that, that, that risk averseness that goes up to, okay, what is it gonna take for me to try to something new? Some people are like, they switch all the time and, and sort of gotten used to that, especially since there are so many new therapies available. And, and for the most part, those tend to be folks who are not under control, who are on glucocorticoid steroids, and they're still trying to find sort of a happy place. Uh, but for those who have sort of been on one therapy for you know a few years at a time, that resistance to trying something new, it's a big deal. And it definitely requires multiple conversations and enough flares along the way. Um, so we're seeing lots of things around that. But another part that comes up that's always been the case is what's going to be reimbursable. You know, and that's sort of out of their control. Um, so in, in back in 2006, you wrote that uh, you wrote that um, other things, non-medical factors really weren't big in there, you know, administrative issues and how you take the drug and inconvenience that those really didn't pan out very much. You still think that that's true? It always affects the continuation, you know, and whether or not you get it to begin with. Um, but, you know, rarely do you get prescribed and start something that gets taken away from you. But now that we have biosimilars and lots of other things coming along the way, those are definitely issues that come up, but not that weren't as present in 2006. So I'm a little concerned. I like, I like how this has evolved. I like your understanding of this. I'm a little concerned on applicability in that, um, is it possible that the, in the last survey of 1600 patients, you, you um, skewed this by having really good patients, people who are, who know what they're doing and they're, they're, they bought into the game and they're not. So how would this look if you were looking at people who are new to the medical clinic and their diagnoses in the first you know, I, year? That is a great question. And it is, is skewed that way. I mean, and think about it. These are people who've been participating in forward data bank for a few years now, because we, we haven't been able to recruit much during the pandemic and they're answering the question in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, and you know, so th that both contributes to it. They're older in general uh, and they definitely have more experience with more drugs, but that also means they've had more experience with side effects. So this is uh, it, it, not your run of the mill, uh, new diagnosed, uh, newly diagnosed RA patients. Uh, and that, you know, somebody who's newly diagnosed, uh, the idea of going quickly to a biologic might be an anathema, you know, to them. Uh, and so we're not getting that in here. Uh, whereas, you know, having other therapies who are, who are considerably strong that are oral once a day seems like, okay, that seems a little more reasonable. So the issue of time factors into this. So there's a, the book by Malcolm Gladwell, Tipping Point, showing that you need, you know, 10 years to change or more to change behaviors, even, even in the face of strong data. And then there's um, the Ellsberg paradox, which um, Daniel Ellsberg um, talked about decisions being driven by a version of ambiguity. You'd rather stick with the odds that you know, as opposed to the unknown odds of potentially getting better, but they're unknown odds. So you stick with the, where you are, as opposed to maybe taking a risk. Um, so ambiguity of change is really, really worrisome. And then of course, Michoud and Wolf in their 2006 paper published 2007 um, says it's better to dance with the devil you know as opposed to the devil you don't. Um, and that's what the patients say. 
right? right. And should, shouldn't, though, time have changed this problem? And did time change the equation here for you in your 15-year follow-up? So, so one thing, it, and it's, this study doesn't answer that, is how many of these participants actually know what their disease activity is? Like, where is it? And like, what are the, their physicians? Are? And I think it's a very different conversation if they can say, well, I'm now at this medium or high disease activity level and I need to do something different because this is not where I want to be versus I'm okay with this, even though it's not where my doctor wants me to be. And, and that really comes back to the conversation, the communication of what are our goals? And, if, you know, as physician, physician side is like, we want you in low. We want you low disease activity because all these other bad things happen when you're anything above it. But the patient is like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of okay where I'm at this control where, I, you know, so it really comes back to that one. That's one thing I see. And the, and the second is like you said before, is the, um, the overall willingness to change. I mean, I know a lot of people who, who feel like if they don't get an injection at this point, they're not getting real therapy because they're so now trained to do that. Right. Uh, <laughs> so if there's not the pain and the, and the, the, the feeling of something's working, something's happening in me uh, versus others, you're like, you know, keep those away when you even think about starting. I almost get the sense that patients are forced to play the game we make them play, meaning that you know, when you look at patient perceptions of their status and outcome, they're different than doctors. Doctors are driven by swollen joints and patients are driven by, you know, pain and fatigue and uh, lifestyle issues that doctors may not really factor into, but yet patients are dependent upon the doctor for the next treatment change or for the plan of therapy or for the prescription. So when a doctor says you're doing great, you're in remission, even though they, they're they okay, you know, all right, I'll take this because one, it's the game I'm playing and two, I, I don't know I wanna change. That's, that's exactly right. I mean, this, this is not, yeah. <laughs> I don't have much more to add to that. That's exactly right. We have different goals at different times and you can only measure so much from the patients. Are you uh, in the parallel thing that you're doing with adherence? Are you, is it the same data set? Is it going to be tied to this, this analysis or it's just going to be a sort of a parallel analysis? It's parallel. It's a, it was a completely different study taking a look at adherence, following up on our methotrexate adherence. And, you know, it just screams at me to sort of like, you know, patients, first of all, if they take things in the morning, they're more likely to be adherent, but also if their patient global is better, they're more likely to be adherent. So you think you have any advice for clinicians out there who time to time struggle with this on patients who are unwilling to change what can be gleaned from these two separate studies um, 15 years apart that could make us better at, I mean, our biggest struggle that we don't really address is we're, we're not really in the business of making patients into good patients. We think if they just listen to everything I say that they will be a good patient, but it's so much more than that. So um, yeah, I, I I feel like your shirt sort of gets to the struggle we're having the, because you can tell your patient to get vaccinated. It doesn't mean they're going to get vaccinated and it's not so different, right? He's like, okay, well, I think you should take this medicate, this DMARD you should take this. Here's the prescription. And then what happens is sort of a black box. You're like, well, I provided you with my role as the physician, as opposed to I'm here to help you help yourself and here's the information that you need. And I wanna answer your questions, but you know, because it's not your job to sort of be making sure that they take the pills each day. 
you know, it's, you know, at some level you have to get some sort of sense that they're doing it for you to actually feel like you have a relationship that you can, you know, that your prescription or your, your, your words mean anything too. So it's sort of part of that, you know, cooperative that you're building. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's the, the, I think the pandemic as anything has taught us like this is really important for how we communicate why they should be taking what we're prescribing. Right. So um, I want to refer the audience to the original paper in Arthritis and Rheumatism 2007 by Fred Wolf and Caleb Michaud. Um, the title is Resistance of Rheumatoid Arthritis Patients to Changing Therapy, Discordance Between Disease Activity and Patient Treatment Choices. You really should download it and I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. Um, it's a really good read. It'll tell you so much about um, the challenges you have as a clinician. And of course, this particular paper um, Caleb's working on. It's coming soon to a PubMed listing near you. Caleb, thank you so much for all your really important work in rheumatology, especially in the area of rheumatoid arthritis. Thank you very much, Jack. It's nice to see you, and I'm glad to talk about this today. Okay. Take care, everyone. With such a broad treatment landscape for rheumatoid arthritis, it can be difficult to find an appropriate treatment option for your patients. Given that some detrimental effects of RA may be permanent, what can you do to get ahead of the situation? An exploratory study has been conducted investigating treatment outcomes in a unique patient population. Patients who tested positive for both anti-CCP and rheumatoid factor, which together are associated with higher disease activity. This study may suggest a different way to look at RA patients. See the results for yourself at rabiomarkers.com.